Today's Bible reading comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3 and going through to verse 9. It can be found in your leaflets or on page 983 of the Church Bibles. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. That will be a familiar sound for anyone who grew up in London or if you visited and travelled on the London Underground. Those of you wondering what on earth I'm talking about, it's a recording that's heard in particular stations to warn passengers of the danger between the platform edge and the, the carriage as it comes into the station, um, certain platforms on the London Underground are quite curved. And when a, when a train comes in, there can be, depending on what door you get out of, quite a significant gap. So you hear this recording. And today's passage has a, a similar purpose In the the opening of Peter's letter, um, the train of God's very great and precious promises has arrived. And for those who are getting on to join the trip, Peter is warning and encouraging his readers to mind mind the gap in their Christian journey. What is that gap and why, why do we need to mind it? Well, that's what I'm going to be exploring this morning. But first, let's just recap and, and set the scene, so to speak. Last week, looking at the beginning of the letter, we saw how Peter reminded his readers that they have a faith as precious as his. This is Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, the, the leader, really, of the group. Um, he's the, the rock on which Jesus built his church. And yet, their faith, our faith, is as precious as his. The reason for this, he points out, is that their faith, our faith, is a generous gift through their knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And Cameron reminded us last week that it's not just an intellectual knowledge, um, an awareness or or information about Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's not even uh, an intellectual assent that, okay, yes, this is... The importance. This is what Jesus' death and resurrection means. That's part of it, but it's not the whole picture. Cameron explained it's more of a personal knowledge that is a result of being made right before God, being cleared of the penalty of sin, and having been adopted into his family. It's a knowledge that is a result of being in Christ, or as Peter puts it here, being participators in the divine nature. Now, if you're here this morning as someone who is not yet a Christian, perhaps you've been 
dragged along by a friend or you're here exploring, wondering what it's all about. We all have a problem that we are separated from God by our sin. All of us. Yet in Jesus' death and resurrection, God has dealt with us, with our sin and opened up a relationship with us, for us, with him. And he's given us a wonderful hope of a future life free from tears, pain and suffering. And Peter reminds us that this abundant grace and peace we have in our Christian faith is nothing to do with us. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation except rely on Jesus' death and resurrection. This is our faith. This was their faith. This is Peter's faith. It's the good news, the gospel, that we've celebrated earlier in communion. However, for Peter's readers and for us, there is a risk of falling into a gap, a gospel gap. And 2 Peter 1, 8 and 9 describes this gap better than any other passage in Scripture. Have a look at it, particularly verses 8 and 9. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. In these verses, we get the symptoms of the gap. Peter points out that there are people who do know the Lord, but their lives fail to produce the expected fruit of faith. Their lives aren't characterised by peaceful relationships, a natural day-by-day worship of the Lord, wholesome habits, or ongoing spiritual growth. Instead, these believers leave a trail of broken relationships, a knowledgeable but impersonal walk with God, bad habits, and a definite lack of personal growth. Something is wrong with this kind of harvest. It contradicts the faith that's meant to be at its source. But why are many Christians ineffective and unfruitful, as Peter says? Why do we sometimes have a confessional theology? What we, what we say and we think we believe in God. And then a functional theology. What our lives lived out tell about what we believe in God. Peter provides a diagnosis in verse 9. Saying that they're nearsighted and blind. Have forgotten having forgotten that they've been cleansed from their past sins. These people are blind to the power and hope of the gospel for today. What do I mean? Well, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a then, now, then gospel. First, there's the the then of the past. When we embrace Christ by faith, our sins are completely forgiven And we stand before God as righteous. There's also then of the future, the promise of eternity with the Lord, free from sin and struggle. And historically, the church has has done a fairly good job of describing those two thens. What the church sometimes hasn't done so well is 
it's tended to understate or misunderstand the now benefits for the work of the work of Christ. You see, it's not only it's not enough only to believe in life after death. The gospel makes a difference in the here and now. It helps me as a father, a husband, a worker, and a member of the body of Christ. It empowers me to respond well to difficulty and to make God-honouring decisions. It shapes my meaning, my purpose, my identity, and it motivates me to ministry to others. Now, I don't know if it's the same for you, but when, often when I think about this, I think of other people, maybe other people who I perhaps don't see producing fruit. And yet this only reveals my own blindness. Many of us will experience gaps, gospel blindness. Our sight is dimmed by the tyranny of the urgent, by the siren call of success, the seductions of peer pressure and popularity, by our own inability to admit our own problems and casual relationships within the body of Christ. Fortunately, Peter here gives us something to fill that gap and to bring the power of the gospel into the here and now of our lives. Look at verse 5. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. The filling of the gospel gap should be an ongoing life of transformation and growth. Now, this is sometimes described in theological terms as sanctification. Growing in these virtues in increasing measure, Peter goes on, will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our faith. When our eyes are well and truly opened and we honestly look at ourselves in light of God's truth, when we see the gaps in our own life are, this ongoing transformation can seem daunting, scary, challenging, maybe impossible. And yet, ongoing transformation is appropriate, it's possible, and it's a lifelong process. Now, it could be argued that in light of the gospel gap that I mentioned Ongoing transformation is really necessary. We want to be effective and fruitful in our knowledge of Jesus. We want to grow in our faith, yes. It could be argued that the growth that Peter mentions is actually an obligation. It's telling that a large part of chapter 2 of Peter's letter deals with arguments against false teachers. Peter is therefore warning us that if we're ineffective and unproductive, nearsighted or blind, or if we forget the grace and mercy that we've received, we risk being led astray and losing the hope that we have. But despite this, Peter, I don't think, is wanting to scare us or make us feel guilty. He's, he's encouraging us, which is why I've suggested on your, your outlines that Transformation is actually appropriate. 
Look, look at verse 5 again. For this very reason. Well, what reason? Well, the reasons are there in the chapters before. Because we have been given a precious faith. Because grace and peace are available to us. Because we've been given great and precious promises. We've been enabled to participate in the divine nature. And we've been freed from the corruption caused by the world and our evil desires. This has been done for us. Surely the appropriate response should be one of loving effort. Now, just as an aside here, I think it should be noted that these virtues are not an exhaustive list. In the New Testament, there's other lists of godly character and and spiritual fruit, as I'm sure you're familiar with. And generally, people agree that the the order in which these uh, are presented are not necessarily significant. You know, you don't have to sort one out, then you move on to the next one, then tick that one on the list, list and then you concentrate on the next. It's a, it's a method that Peter's using to, to give us these um, virtues. Although, despite saying I don't think the order is significant, I think it's quite telling, and I think it's worth remembering, that these virtues are bracketed by, on the one hand, faith, which is the basis of godly character, and at the other end is love which should be our ultimate goal in our relationship with God and with others. Cameron has often used the image of, of marriage, where we make every effort for our spouse, not to earn their love, but because we love them and they love us. Here in this passage, we make every effort not to earn God's love, but to grow in the love that we have already been given. So, ongoing transformation is appropriate. But how does transformation of our lives happen? Transformation of our characters, how does it work? How is it possible for us to grow in our faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, etc., etc.? Well, transformation can be a passive thing, something that happens to us. As we move through life, dealing with the joys and the challenges of changing circumstances, we sometimes look back and reflect on how much we have learned and how we've changed. For those of us who are parents, having children, of course, changes our life in a practical way. But I'm sure many of you will have reflected and thought about how your spiritual life has changed as you've had children. I know for me, just learning about being a father and thinking about our heavenly father, has, that has helped me to grow. However, transformation can be, and perhaps it ought to be, something that is more proactive and intentional. And this would involve practices that are, practices that are sometimes described as means of grace or spiritual disciplines. Some of these things are are obvious, and I'm sure you're familiar with them. Bible study, prayer, fellowship. Others may be a bit unfamiliar or sound a bit strange. Things like meditation, fasting, solitude. What is appropriate or needed for each of you, 
for me will be different for each of us. Now, perhaps here, maybe a question has arisen. Is our growth a work of God or our work? Well, of course, the answer is yes. It is both. In, in some passages in Scripture, it seems to be more a work of God. Galatians 5, is, uh, is a pas- there's a passage that I'm sure you're familiar with, where Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Suggesting that growth in Christian character is a work of God through his Spirit. In our passage, though, Peter is telling us to make every effort, which seems to be indicating that it's us who should be making every effort. Um, But we have to remember the context for some of these passages. Paul, to the Galatians, was writing to a church who are at risk of turning to legalism of human effort, and particularly Jewish tradition. So it's not surprising that he reminds them of what God does for us. Peter, however, is writing to a church which is facing false teaching of a different kind. Chapter 2 paints the false teachers as having shameful ways that deny Christ. They are greedy, arrogant, brute beasts, creatures of instincts with eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They are slaves of depravity. It's good stuff, isn't it? I feel I should read it in a Scottish accent. They are slaves of depravity. In light of that, it's not surprising that Peter is emphasising actually the effort needed by his readers to behave in a way that is in contrast to the false teachers. Philippians 2 In Philippians 2, Paul captures the dual nature of this growth and transformation. Continue to work out your salvation, he tells the Philippians, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his purposes. So work out, God works in you. So how how is transformation possible? I'm not going to ask anyone to put hands up, but has anyone here struggled with a particular sin, an issue, or a fear? Satan is very good at coming to tell us, you'll never change. You don't have what it takes. You're not that sort of person. If only you had that gift, or you'd had that experience, or maybe you had this strength, Maybe you could do it, but you don't, so you can't. Well, actually, Peter tells us, God's word tells us, that God has given us all we need. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us. It's not the start of what we need. It's not a little bit of what we need, not some of what we need or most of what we need. God has given us everything we need. We have all we need. But yet we still need to be growing and flourishing in what we have been given. Do you remember the the parable of the talents 
three servants being given three different amounts of money while their master is away. While the first two increase what they have been given, the third buries it in a field and just returns the money given to him without any growth. Will we put to use what we have been given? Now, as I've mentioned, growth and transformation in our faith will look different for different people. I think it needs to be said that it is a community work. As individuals, we need others in the body of Christ for our ongoing transformation. I need you. You need each other. Alexa and I were once part of a church in the UK which had what were called formation groups. These were groups of four people who would meet together once a week for just about an hour to pray for each other, encourage each other, hold each other accountable and set habits, good habits, with the aim of growing in Christ-likeness. Together, it was about making the effort to put ourselves in the place, the sort of place where God would work in us and through us in our lives. Now, whether this is during our conversations after church or at home groups or meeting up for coffee during the week, we need each other to encourage, support, pray, perhaps sometimes rebuke each other. And it can be difficult It requires honesty, grace, vulnerability, sensitivity. But we can encourage each other here at Trinity Hills to help each other be making every effort to grow in our faith. So, transformation is appropriate. Transformation is possible. And transformation takes time. It's a lifelong task. Now, we live in a world, don't we, where... We don't do gradual very well. You know, we want it all instantly, immediate, straight away, direct from the US. If, if, a, web, if a web page takes more than 30 seconds to load, we get impatient, don't we? And, and I know the staff in the, the, the office um, get very impatient with the internet at times. Now, when it comes to, to study, I'm generally pretty much of a last-minute kind of deadline kind of guy. So I'm quite glad that there's not a set deadline to reach my level of spiritual growth. I'm glad it's a lifelong task. I'm glad we will never stop growing and being transformed. Now, in the second, le- in the second chapter of John's first letter, he, he mentions children, young men and fathers. And this is thought by some to, that he's actually referring to three different stages of Christian life. So the young or new Christian, sort of adolescent Christians, and mature Christians. Now, it's not something that's well defined, and we can't say when you transfer from one to the other. And if someone was to say to me, that's not right, and it's not something to hold too tight to. But I'm sure some of this may sound familiar to you. If you think about it, when a baby is born, sometimes they come out screaming and howling, saying, here I am. And kind of baby Christians can be a bit like that sometimes. They're 
enthusiastic, they're into everything, full of energy. Sometimes they can be a little bit overzealous. But birth can also be sometimes a hard or fragile thing. Some babies are quiet for a little while, or it's, it's a bit more of a struggle. And that's, can be, that can be true for new Christians. Coming to faith can be a long, drawn-out process. It seems like you only just come into your new life, asking, oh, this is going to be harder than I thought. But at some point, don't we, we become, our faith, our faith grows. We perhaps become adolescent Christians. Maybe we notice the zit on our character, that sin that really stands out that we're embarrassed about. We become more aware of the world around us. And God will sometimes stretch us and gr- stretch us to grow us. New Christians sometimes will have real feelings of excitement, excitement, the excitement and nearness and love from God. But then those after time will pass. This is because God wants us to love Him, not the experience. He wants us to move close to Him because what He says not because of the feeling. So he grows us. And then the mature Christian, well, I guess one sign of maturity is that we know, or that mature Christians know that they aren't there yet. Think of someone in your heads. Think of someone you consider a mature Christian. What comes to mind? What characteristics? Would it be that they're good Wise, self-controlled, persistent, godly, warm, affectionate, loving. Exactly the characteristics Peter is talking about. Now, if you're listening to this thinking, oh, I can't do that. It all seems a bit disheartening. How am I supposed to grow grow in my faith? I hope it doesn't because transformation is an exciting thing. But if you are feeling disheartened, disheartened. Let me just give you a few encouragements. Let's encourage each other. Firstly, it's important to remember that growth through our lifetime probably isn't going to be a gradual, steady, linear incline. During our lives, we have times of great growth and then times of less growth. We may have seasons of pain and suffering where we seem to be going backwards. There will also be times where we do trip and fall. This process of growth and ongoing transformation I have heard described as like pogoing up a set of stairs. We have our ups and downs, but we're generally going in the right direction. Second encouragement is to remember to look in two different directions. The first direction is to look back at how far you've come. I used to do quite a bit of trekking and hiking, and there were times when it would be really hard. You'd be tired and sore, your feet were aching, you'd feel like you're not getting anywhere, and then you'd stop and you'd look back down in the valley and realise how far you've come. It's exactly what Paul does when he writes to the Corinthians and tells them, think of what you were when you were first called. 
We also need to look ahead, see where we're going. We can have confidence that God will finish what he started in us. Paul, again, writing to the Philippians, says that he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we have to mind the gap between our confessional theology and our functional theology, how we live our lives, and make every effort to be transformed and grow in our faith. We do not want to become bonsai Christians. Now, if you're not aware, bonsai is the ancient Japanese art of growing miniature trees in pots. Now, I didn't realise until recently, but these miniatures are not different varieties that only grow small. They're actually the same trees that grow, you know, however tall, huge, tall trees, but they're restricted and constrained through pruning, cutting, and training how they grow. If we do not grow in our faith, we risk remaining constricted and limited. A bonsai tree doesn't offer much in the way of shade to those seeking shelter. It doesn't offer, doesn't bear much fruit for those who come looking for it. Ongoing transformation, therefore, is an appropriate response to the great and precious promises that God has made to us. As God has given us all we need, transformation is possible in many and different ways. And transformation takes time. A bit like this sermon. Let me close with a story of a lifetime of growth. At the beginning of this story, the the man who I'm talking about was a tradesman. And he was initially sceptical when he first met Christ. He was impetuous, enthusiastic and outspoken. As he grew in his faith, he had a powerful mountaintop experience, put his faith into action, he saw wondrous miracles and he stepped out in faith and had deep insight. He was even called to become a leader of his church. And yet, unfortunately, at a time of severe crisis, he denied his faith. Happily, he was restored and became committed to the call on his life. As a church leader, he was challenged to rethink his theology. And he played a big part in church growth, particularly welcoming outsiders. He did make mistakes, and there were times when he came into conflict with those he worked with. But he was humble enough to realise his mistakes and accept rebuke. Later in his life, he undertook theological writing, and he penned at least two books of the New Testament, one of which we've studied today. The life of Simon Peter shows us the warts and all transformation from the impetuous Sea of Galilee fisherman to the rock on whom Christ built his church. If anyone is qualified to encourage us to a transformed life, it is him.